Well, our reading for today for the sermon is Luke 21, 5 through 19. That's on page 1042, Luke 29, pardon me, 21, 5 through 19. And a few words of introduction about it. This passage has to do with the temple in Jerusalem. And there's some backstory to the temple that's really very interesting. And I'm going to start going back a little bit of time with somebody named Herod the Great. And I'm going to do sort of the rock star quotes around the Great. Because it's kind of like Catherine the Great or some of these other people that they really weren't like nice people. They really weren't really friendly people. But they did some really big things and they, they had kind of an oversized footprint on history. And so Herod was the same way. Herod, this is the same Herod who built, he's the one that was responsible for the building of the new temple in Jerusalem that is the subject of our passage today. He's, he was um, also the one that was responsible for trying to eradicate all the male children of Jerusalem when Jesus was born. So that's not great, that's just awful, right? But he, he was decisive, and he wasn't even completely Jewish. He was really only half Jewish. The other half of him was from a different a different nation, and so there was some suspicion about him. But as it turned out, at least as far as the Roman Empire was concerned, he was the perfect person to be the king of what was known as the Roman province of Palestine. The king, and he would be the king of the Jews in that sense. Uh, and one of the reasons was that he understood how to cultivate favor with the Roman emperor. He sent the Roman emperor personal gifts of huge sums of money and other things. And that was, it's a form of relationship in the ancient world called patronage. In other words, you have a patron who's somebody higher up than you in the, in the hierarchy. You uh, praise them at every opportunity. You also send them money or gifts, and that cultivates them as a patron of yours. And later, they send you political favors, more responsibility, things like that. And so he was the perfect person. He was like our man in Palestine, basically. He was a hand in glove with the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons was that he could keep the population in check. The Jewish people were kind of a rebellious lot. They had this book, and the book said that God was going to vindicate them. And they really believed this book. You know what book I'm talking about, right? And so they were always thinking that, that God is always going to come in our midst and overthrow the yokes of the people who have enslaved us, because he's always done it in the past. And the Greeks have been here, they're gone. The, you know, the Assyrians have been there, they're gone. The Babylonians have been here, they're gone. Everybody who has come along our way has finally been dealt with, and so it's, it's the Romans are next. So this is a difficult population to manage for the Roman Empire, and that's why Herod was very useful to them, because he could keep them in check. And, but at the same time, the political reality of the Roman Empire was that the Jewish people needed to be both kept in check, but they also needed to be appeased. They needed to be cajoled. There was both a carrot and a stick. And the carrot was because a huge portion of the Roman Empire was actually Jewish. 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. That made them one of the largest people groups in the whole Roman Empire. And it's a people group that you have to keep happy because they're merchants and they're farmers and they're part of the trade system of the whole network. If you alienate them or wipe them all out, the empire is going to suffer. So the political reality was we can't just get rid of these troublesome people. We both have to kind of intimidate them, but at the same time appease them. And there were two strategies for appeasing the Jews. One was they were allowed to keep their own customs. 
and they were allowed to keep their own books, and on some level they were allowed to have their own system of laws so that they could deal with lawbreakers in their own midst, but they couldn't put somebody to death, or they shouldn't at least. So only the Romans could crucify Jesus, the Jews couldn't. It's an interesting point. And so that was unique among subjugated people groups in the Roman empires. The Jews actually had more privileges than many other minority groups in the empire. The other appeasement was the temple. The temple, at one point in the history of the Roman Empire, was the biggest public works project that was being funded by the tax coffers of the Roman Empire. It was expensive, incredibly expensive. A lot of work went into it, and it really helped the local economy because they had to pay artisans to cut stone and build things. And the building of the temple itself was amazing. And only Herod, what part of what makes Herod great was he had a vision for all this. He talked the emperor into it. He said, let's rebuild the temple. It will appease the people. It'll make this massive things. And so the patronage worked. He sent Caesar gifts. Caesar sent back work and funds to build this temple. And so the temple, as you see, it's, it's kind of a big deal. It's a way of appeasing the Jews. It's a way of keeping them in line. I want to read to you something from Josephus. It's from his Antiquities. Josephus is one of the uh, Jewish historians of the Roman Empire and the life of the Jewish people. And he writes about Herod's temple. And this is what he writes. He said, The temple had doors also at its entrance and lintels over them of the same height with the temple itself. Giant doors leading into the temple. And the temple, uh, they were 30 cubits high, which is 45 feet. Can you imagine? Our, our doors are like maybe 9 feet high. Can you imagine if a door 45 feet high? It's a, what a grand door. Right? To go in. Um, they were, these doors, these gates, were adorned with embroidered veils, with the flowers of purple and pillars interwoven, and over these, but under the crown work, was spread out a golden vine. It was a replica of a vine growing grapes, but it was made of gold. It was made, or it was plated with gold. This is pretty fine stuff for back then. You know, this is expensive expensive stuff. With its branches hanging down from a great height, the largeness and fine workmanship of which was a surprising sight to the spectators to see what vast materials there were and with what great skill the workmanship was done. And he also encompassed the entire temple with very large large cloisters or porticos or porches that were colonnaded. They had columns around them. Contriving them to be in due, due proportion thereto and he laid out larger sums of money upon them than had been done before till it seemed that no one else had so greatly adorned the temple as he had done. There was a large wall to both the cloisters, which, was, which wall was itself the most prodigious work that was ever heard of by man. And what he's referring to now is the wall that goes all the way around the temple precinct. It's like a giant rectangular wall, much bigger than the temple itself. The temple sat in the middle, and it created a plateau at the top. And only the western portion of this wall exists to this day, and it's called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. And it's a flashpoint of conflict in Israel right now because the Temple Mount is actually now occupied by a mosque. And the place where the old temple was is occupied by a mosque. Did you all know that? It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's very interesting that the holiest place of <laughs> all three religions is in this little area. And all that's left of this original temple is just the wall 
that enclosed and actually set apart the temple from the rest of the world. And in that wall, you can take a tour today of tunnels, you will find the most amazing stonemasonry. It's, it's baffling to, the, to this day. There is a stone there that's, I think, 60 feet long and about 12 feet high and about 10 feet wide. And it weighs 600 tons. It's made out of solid limestone. And they have no idea to this day how anyone moved it there. It's massive. It's the size of a city bus, a small city bus. Krista and I saw it. It's amazing. The expense that went into just building the wall around the temple, but then the temple itself in the middle, having these gold grapevines hanging from it and being adorned with all this finery. And so Herod brought all this in. So you can imagine what people thought of Herod. We kind of don't like him because he sold out to the Romans, but he's building us this temple, which we like because it's even grander than Solomon's temple. So it's complex, isn't it? It's, it's mixed. And actually, the Jews faced a choice with this. They're like, do we accept the Roman peace, this Pax Romana that comes but it comes with a price. We have to pay their taxes. We have to go and worship in this temple, which was built by a person who's not even truly Jewish. I mean, that's hard, right? It, and so there were some people, and you could say they sold out to the Romans. And that would be the, the temple priestly class, the high priests. They couldn't be the high priests of the temple unless they agreed with the Romans. There was a Roman garrison. The other aspect of this temple was that there was a garrison of Roman soldiers in a tower that was permanently installed on the northern end of the temple grounds so that the Roman soldiers could look out their window and watch what was happening and stop any insurrection the moment it started. So the people who ran the temple had to be in agreement with the Roman Empire. They, they couldn't start an anti-Roman movement in the temple. It just wouldn't have worked out. So they sold out. The Sadducees probably sold out a bit to the Romans. And, of course, the tax collectors collected tax from their fellow people. So that would be people like Zacchaeus that we heard about two weeks ago. Or Matthew, one of the disciples, was a tax collector. And in cahoots, I guess you could say, with the Romans. The other choice was to be totally against it and to look at Herod and say, he's not one of us. And you look at the temple and you say, I'm not going to even touch that place because it's made with all this ill-gotten gain, and it's really a temple to Herod. It's not really a temple to God. And so you'd get people like the Pharisees, who were ultra-nationalists, and, and they had no love for the Romans, and they were heroes of the people, despite their treatment in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. They were people who really cared about Jewish identity, and they didn't really care for the temple or the Sadducees or the high priestly class, and they didn't like the Romans. And then there were people called the Zealots who went even further. And their goal was, we're going to free this place from the Romans. So Simon was one of those. One of the apostles was a Zealot. What do you think that was like when Jesus is walking around and, and Matthew's back here and Simon's back here and they're talking to each other? Now, Matthew had reformed, right? He left his tax collecting table by the Sea of Galilee and he started walking with Jesus. So he had had a conversion, but we, I think we have to assume that probably Simon did too of some sort. So they got to a place where they're where the lordship of Jesus somehow started making more sense to them than the question of whether we can worship at the table, at the temple, or whether we should follow Herod or the emperor uh, ever became an issue. And by the time of Jesus, Herod the Great um, had already passed on and his children were in control. 
And, and they themselves were a depraved lot. And John the Baptist got his head cut off because he criticized the, uh, it was even worse than the Kardashians. I mean, it was like he criticized sort of the inner workings of that royal family, and that cost him his head because one of them married his niece, you know, and they thought that was great, and everybody else thought that was gross, you know. And so this was the, these were the people running the country, and they had the Romans at their back, and they were funding the temple. So can you get an idea of how complex it was to live back then? Nothing has changed. People back then are the same as they are now. We have all these institutions in our world that are complex and compromised. There's nothing truly pure in this world. There's no really good motives that are pure all the way. Everything has the tinge. Everything has some compromise that you had to make. Now, today's reading is about the temple, and it's a symbol, actually, for how broken and compromised things can get in this world. And in the reading, and as I preach, I want us to find a way forward to a time when God is going to set all these things right and actually do away with the need for a temple and what it symbolizes, but that only comes after some severe trials for the faithful. And so, that's like the longest introduction I've ever given. I hope you're still with me. But I, I'm now about to read the scriptures. So let's go to page 1042 and read from Luke 29, 5 through 19. So, verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another, every one of them will be thrown down. Okay. Verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a head on your head, not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few notes uh, in light of this reading is that we find that the temple is something that divided people. The zealots didn't care for it. One of the apostles was a zealot. Uh, at the same time, we had Matthew, who was a tax collector. Some of the taxes he collected paid for this building to be built. 
But notice what Jesus does with the temple. Jesus doesn't denounce the temple outright. He, he doesn't care much for the marketplace that sprung up inside it or around it. And remember, he throws over the tables of all the money changers and, and where all the animals are being sold. But Jesus is brought to the temple as a child. Remember? And then when his parents go home, they can't find him because he stayed back. And he said, I had to be in my father's house. Interesting. So how does Jesus approach this really conflicted and compromised institution that's designed to appease the Jewish people? By the way, it didn't work. In 70 AD, a revolt happened, and a lot of it centered around this temple mount, this temple precinct. And then the Romans did come, and they wiped the whole thing down. And it was a bit of hyperbole that Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon each other. But they tried their darndest to not let one stone rest on another. Some of them were just too big, like the one the size of the city bus. It was immovable, so it's still there, and some of the, the stones above it. But basically, Jesus' prediction about this came absolutely true physically in 70 AD. The Romans came, and they decimated the city, and they, they tore down the... Because it was a symbol, and the Romans said, well, how about this for a symbol? We will wipe it out, and this is what we do to anyone who rebels against us. But Jesus calls it my father's house. He also looks over the temple and all of Jerusalem and he weeps because of how compromised God's people had become. Some of them were worshiping in the temple. Some of them were refusing to set foot near it. But somehow Jesus was able to go there and find there both his father's house but also to confront those things that were corrupt and crooked in it. Later on, the apostles used the temple to great effect. They spend a great deal of their time in the place called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. It's one of those colonnades that I mentioned, Josephus mentioned. And people would sit there and exchange ideas. The apostles, after Jesus' ascension, stayed there and preached the gospel in that place. And many thousands of people came to know Jesus as a result of the apostles preaching in the temple precincts. So the temple, as compromised as it was, continued to serve its purpose in that God's will and God's gospel was revealed in it or around it. So it's really too simple, and I think this is the thing that we're getting to. And I, I want us to maybe draw mentally some, some parallels to just how we think about institutions, whether they're governments or churches or school boards or anything like that. It's so simple to say the temple is bad or to say the temple is good. It's more complex than that, but it's also more compromised than that because of human nature. The temple actually is a perfect symbol because it's emblematic of how we as humans twist good things. The temple in itself is a good place. It's the place where God comes to the earth. The holy of holies is the place where people can worship. The good is still in there, but it needs to be searched for. We need to find in it a way uh, to, to worship and to seek after God. But what we actually do with things like this, whether they're governments or churches or any other organization or human institution, is there's some good in it, but we try to find in them a way to get ahead for ourselves, to push our own interests, our own opinions, our own agendas on other people or on the institution itself. And that's how human institutions get broken is they're run by human people who have human motives. And this is a challenge for the church. It's a challenge for all sorts of things. Herod got immensely rich 
off of building this temple. And the priestly class had a building that rivaled the splendor of Solomon's temple. The zealots had a visible symbol, symbol to focus their hatred on. So in a way, you could say the, symbol made, the, the, the temple made everybody happy because they all got in it what they wanted. But Jesus was there, and he got out of it what was truly there. This is my Father's house, as broken and as messed up as it is. And I think we need to begin to understand that what we see in the world is this happens at every institution. And the people then were just like us in every possible way. This conflicted and compromised approach to human institutions that had all these multiple meanings and symbols to different people. So let's look at the text. Uh, go ahead and take a look at, uh, starting at verse 5. And that you see that the, the disciples, um, conveniently, I guess, because they're just looking at the temple, they're there with Jesus, they're looking at this thing going, oh, my word. Like Josephus says, there has never been a project in the known human world, it's a bit of hyperbole, too, for Josephus, he was known to exaggerate, nothing has rivaled this project. And truly it was one of the biggest public works projects that ever happened in the Roman Empire. Can you imagine that? Like, we don't think that way. The Romans said, let's build something huge in Rome. Yeah, like the Colosseum, some of these temples, things like that, right? That would make sense. Does it make sense to us? The Romans say, let's build something really big in Jerusalem. But they did. And it's just interesting. It's just interesting. So, um, and now I've lost myself. Yeah, so the disciples are looking at this thing. And they're saying, look at the stone." That one's as big as a bus, a camel bus, you know. That one's as big as 50 camels or whatever they had for buses back then, right? Look at, the, look at, look at all the finery here. And then as you notice, you look at verse, uh, verse uh, 6. Um, or, it was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. These were individual gifts that people had made to the temple. Uh, I'm going to give a great for that grapevine, you know? I'm going to give a piece of cloth for the doorway, the embroidering. I'm going to give a, a stone. And my guess is that there was some way that people knew who had given what. So basically, it was like a bunch of plaques. Like, it was like sort of a plaque kind of church. And we don't have a plaque church so much. There is a plaque right here on the side. Um, and this, I like this plaque, but it's, it's small. You can't even see it. There's a plaque on this pulpit. There's maybe one or two other plaques around this church. So we're not a plaque church, okay? We are not a plaque church. We, we brush and floss. You know, we're not a plaque church. But there are churches you go into, and you can't look around without the glint of bronze or brass in your face. So-and-so gave this for the glory of God. So-and-so gave this in memory of their children. So, which is all good. I'm not saying that that kind of, of generosity is bad. It is not. Nor is making a record of that generosity Motive always matters in these things. But it can be a way of me getting what I want when I give that gift, that my name lives forever, that my contribution is acknowledged. And so motive is important, and, and so the, the disciples are looked like, there's a bronze plaque, and there's a bronze plaque. Look at all the gifts that have been brought to this place. This is an interesting place, Jesus. This is an amazing place. It's shiny and beautiful, and there's a lot of people gave gifts. And uh, so it was kind of a plaque church. And Jesus says, you know, the, the toothbrush is coming, but it's actually more like the drill, and it's going to be a root canal. Because not one stone 
is going to stay on top of each other. All this finery is going to get wiped out. And he was right. Historically, he was right. This is the kind of language that got Jesus into a lot of trouble. Remember when he spoke to the, the, the religious leaders and he says, you know, tear down this temple in three days, I'll build it again. Oh, which temple are you talking about? Well, he's talking about his body, but as we understand it, we, we, we see that there's, there's a lot going on there where, where he's really saying, you can't put your faith in buildings. You can't put your faith in plaques. You can't put your faith in finery. Um, you can't put your faith in all the things that you build. Only the things for God last. You can't put a plaque on that. Um, so, when will this happen? You know, this is the perennial question. And this is, this is kind of the question we ask, too. They say, oh, really? Well, this is... We sure would like to know when will this happen, Jesus. And he says, well, there's some signs that, uh, they're, although they're kind of hard to see, uh, wars, rumors of wars, nations going against nations, signs in the heavens. Um, and this is always the challenge in Scripture, is anyone who says they know the exact time is sort of guaranteed to be wrong, right, by Scripture itself, because God doesn't come at our beck and call to, to usher in the final time. He says, at the same time, there's signs that these things are near, or that this will happen before the end comes. But the end, even here he says, the end will not come right away. It's not directly right after that. There's still some time. And so there's a lot of people who say, well, I see wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and signs in the heavens and comets and aurora borealis and all sorts of things, and then we think that's the end. But then Jesus says, the Son of Man will come like a thief in the night when you least expect him. And a good thief doesn't announce his arrival. He wouldn't be a thief very long, would he? He'd be in jail. Oh, I'm going to come rob your house at 3 a.m. on Saturday morning. Well, that just doesn't work. So it's coming, but we don't know when. And your time is probably better spent living the life that God calls you to as a disciple than tabulating the moment of his return. We're all going to be surprised. We're all going to be delighted. And I think, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we're also going to be surprised. I'm going to be super surprised when I get to heaven and say, you want me here? I would never join this club that would want me as a member. And I'll be surprised at some other people who are there. And praise the Lord for that, because God is gracious. He really is. So, but what's more frightening about all of this is what Jesus says. And I imagine this caught everybody's attention is that the faithful will experience severe trials that they will need to endure before all this happens. Now, they'll be persecuted, they'll be uh, brought before public hearings, yet at the same time they'll be able to defend themselves with the words, the Holy Spirit, I, it doesn't say the Spirit here, but I'm believing it's the Spirit that will be able to speak on their behalf with words that cannot be refuted and that are ultimately very persuasive. Um, and that's a challenging thing, too. And, and you could maybe say that this is already happening in the world because of the persecuted church. Yet it's not happening everywhere in the world because this church is not persecuted, as far as I can tell, at least not in a civic way. Although there are certainly people in the world who are looking at our church, or the church right now, and not having a super great opinion of the church. And this is a problem. Every time... Every time a very public Christian gets up and does something really heinous or regrettable or foolish or hypocritical, I just think, 
my job just got harder, and your job just got harder. And it's, and it's almost like you have to, the only way to erase one bad thing is with 10 good things. Have you noticed that? Like it's, once people are like, the Christians are kind of messed up people, it's going to take 10 good encounters with godly disciples for them to go, oh, maybe I was wrong about that. It's really hard to backtrack from that. And so we're in a tough spot. We need God's power. We need the Spirit's work among us to, to let the world know that we love them and we care about them and that Jesus is for them and not against them. Uh, but what really sums all this up, and you could leave all the rest aside if you were just to have this one verse, is verse 17. All men, and this could be all people, all people will hate you because of me. And um, we, have a, we have a corrupt world that's run by corrupt people, and they're only corrupt because they're human, and as humans we're always looking for a way to advance ourselves at the expense of others. And what, and what easier way to do it than when we're in holding the reins of power? And I know I would be corrupted by that kind of power too. I cannot stand on a sort of a high and holy hill and say, that's a problem that those people have who are either running the government or whatever, or, or high up in position in certain organizations. I would be corrupted by it too. And the corruption infiltrates the church because motives are mixed and there's compromise to our culture all the time. And that's in the name of going along and getting along. Or because we think that we're going to get something we want or we need by compromising. And so the church begins to look like all these other compromised human institutions that are mixed. They're mixed. Yet Jesus might come into our church and say, this is my Father's house. The gospel's proclaimed here. My word is read here. Except for one thing in the world, verse 17, all men will hate you because of me. All men will hate you. And first off, this is probably one of my least favorite scriptures. Because I want all men to love me. I really do. Partly because I'm a people pleaser, but that's, that's in my rearview mirror. Praise God. I've had growth as a person amongst you in the last five years I've been among you. And um, I still want people to be happy, and I still want people to think well of me, I guess. But um, I'm more interested, as I've said before, I'm more interested in loving you than I am in pleasing you. And so praise God for that. And, and if, if somebody doesn't like me or somebody hates me, um, that's sad. That's hard. But if it's, for, if it's because I've said the right thing or done the right thing, I, I'm learning how to live with that. And I'm learning how to have peace with that. And I'm not losing sleep over it anymore. So praise God for that. I think that's what God wants, I hope, for all of us. Um, but being hated can make me lose sleep, and I'm getting so little sleep right now with a two-year-old in the house. I just need every drop of it I can get. But it's a reality that the world hates you because of me, of Jesus. The world hates you. And this is what even the rest of the New Testament says. The gospel is foolishness to a perishing generation. They look at what we preach here and they go, that's crazy. Not only, not only do they think it's derisive, I mean, they, they just think it's ridiculous, and so there's a lot of derision and mocking going on of what Christians are up to and what they believe. But the gospel itself is offensive to people. They have an adverse reaction to it because the gospel calls us to account for our own sin, and we hate that. I don't like it. Oh, 
You know those moments when somebody tells you that you've done something wrong and they're right? They're correct? And it, it, <laughs> oh, it's fun. <laughs> That's a fun moment, right? Well, we try to avoid the pleasure principles. We try to avoid that moment at every at every moment. You know, we just don't like that. And the gospel, that's all the that's part of what the gospel is. You've missed the mark. And if you're honest with yourself, you know it's true. The good news is that Christ died on the cross for you so that that can all be dealt with and his righteousness can flow into you, but you have to cross that first threshold of repentance and and oh, we don't like that. And the gospel exposes our lies. And one of the big lies is, I want to earn everything I have. I want to eat because I worked for it, you know. And the gospel says you don't have to earn it. It's a free gift to you. Now, you have to, you have to become a disciple afterwards. Obedience is involved afterwards. But to get it in the first place, you don't earn it. And so the gospel is foolishness to the world, and the gospel is counter to everything that's in the DNA of this world. And the gospel, the most important thing is that it calls us to deny our own selves and take up our own cross and follow Jesus and set aside all the ways we want to advance ourselves and instead call us to advance him. And that's really painful, to give up on my dreams and my aggrandizement of myself. That's hard. That's a conscious act of will to say, you know what, in the end, putting Christ forward and advancing him actually is better for me and for everybody instead of me putting forward myself and getting my way and it's isolated just to me. That's the challenge. So I want Christ to be the only reason that people hate me. And I think this is the challenge for Christians. Is yes, people hate Christians, but I only want people to hate Christians because of Christ. I'm going to say this again. I only want people to hate me because of Jesus and the gospel. I don't want people to hate me because I have opinions that are different than theirs. I, I can keep a lot of my opinions to myself, and, and I can, I, I'm just fine with it. You, know? you don't really need my opinions on anything else except for the gospel, right? You don't need those. They're not that interesting. They're not that great. They're not that enlightened. All I can be about is preaching the gospel. If you hate me because of the gospel, I can sleep at night. But I don't want you to hate me because of my preferences or because of the, 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 the sports team that I love. By the way, my team is, oh, they're in the bottom. So I guess I could never really displease you by telling you I'm a fan of the Arizona Wildcats football team because you could just say, oh, well, we beat them, and then you feel great. They're like two and eight. I think it's probably the worst season they've ever had in ever. That's amazing. It's a real race to the bottom, but except they've won. So, but may the cross of Christ be the only offense that I bring to this world. May it not be my political persuasion that rubs people the wrong way. May it not be my preferences, myself, my, my, all, my, all about myself. I'm called to enter into this world as someone who loves people as God sees them. And I can set aside all my own preferences because the gospel is greater than that. In Galatians 5.11, Paul says that the cross is a stumbling block and an offense, and he would never want to add his offense to it. He's only concerned with preaching the gospel, and he's consent to let Christ bear the responsibility for not uh, liking it, for hating him. And this is the great news. Here's the good news about people who hate you. People who hate you because of Christ are far closer to Christ 
then a huge but growing group of the population who are just apathetic. The apathetic are incredibly hard to reach. They don't think God exists. They don't care. They've got everything they need. They don't have even the energy to hate Christians. They just don't pay any attention one way or other. But those who hate you because of Christ rejoice. That sounds strange. Rejoice because they are near. They are near. That hate, I think, can turn to love because that's what Jesus does. He turns haters into lovers. He does it with all the disciples. He does it with the Roman soldiers. He does it with all these people. He does it with Nicodemus. He does it with... The list goes on and on. We should not be afraid of people who hate us because of Christ because they are far closer to Christ than the apathetic people. And so uh, rejoice when you meet them. And don't run away from them. Don't go, oh, well, I guess you've got some strong feelings there. I guess we just have to maybe not talk about this or I have to stay away from you and, and break off contact with you. No. Stay engaged. But let the gospel be the only offense with that person. Stay in relationship with them because they might just be waiting to see how open you are, how much you can listen. So, for the time being, we have to live with the mixed temple. This hasn't been destroyed yet for us. We have, a, we have temples all over this world. This building could be one of them. It's a beautiful building. We only have a few plaques, thank goodness, you know. Uh, it could be our institutions. They're mixed and they're broken, and yet Jesus is willing to walk into them and find something redemptive in them and engage with them. And so we need to do the same. And, and so this world is beautiful, and it has a lot of plaques hanging on it, and it can truly be the Father's house if we go seeking for the Father in those places. And we remember that Jesus in the flesh goes into places like this, and he preaches from places like this and in other places too. And the time will come when we will need to stand firm and risk persecution, trust in God's protection, and as Jesus says, then we gain life. We gain life after standing. And I want to give us, finally, a sense of what that life is like. It's a future without a temple. The answer, Jesus says, is the temple's going to get destroyed, and that's going to increase your dependence on me. But the final thing is that there will be no temples needed anymore. And I'm going to read to you from Revelations 21, verses 21 to 27. There's a future without a temple. There's a future without compromise. There's a future without mixed motives. There's a future without hatred. There's a future without persecution. A future where life is gained and gained and gained. That future is yet to come after all these other things. But we look forward to it. And this is what it says in Revelations 21. Uh, and before this, it talks about um, all the different precious stones. I'm not going to read them that to you. My son would love it because he was really into mineralogy. But Jasper and Carnelian and all these different things. But we're going to talk about the 12 gates. We've talked really about the gates of the temple. But this is about the gates of the new city of Jerusalem. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. You know that phrase, the streets are paved with gold? That's the new Jerusalem. I did not see... Now listen to this. Verse 22. John, John in his revelation is seeing the new Jerusalem. And he says, I did not see a temple in this city. Isn't that interesting? A Jerusalem without a temple? The new Jerusalem, he says, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb 
are its temple. All the human compromised and broken things are truly wiped away in God's kingdom, and they're replaced by Christ himself. That's glorious. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. I like that. Can you imagine a city of God that, doesn't, that has walls, but has gates that never shut? So what are the walls for? I don't know. You can always come in through the gates. They never shut, because God is open to all. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And with that, I'll end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the new Jerusalem that awaits us, the city without a temple, because the temple is our Lord himself. Lord, in these difficult times with institutions that are compromised, with us as compromised and broken people, tempted by power, Father, we pray that we can enter in as Jesus would and find life, find the Father, love those who hate us, and stand firm and gain life. Amen.